0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to this episode of the East Asia Channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagan. I'm an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Hanno Yench to talk about his recent book, Harvesting State Support, Institutional change and local agency in Japanese agriculture, which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2021. Professor Yench, thank you very much for joining me on the New Books Network.
2: Yeah, thank you. Hi, John. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited that I get the opportunity to talk about um, my book here.
1: Great. Um, yeah, and let's uh, let's dispose of formalities. We'll go with first names. It's easier that way. So, um, I'll begin with a little background about Hano. Um, he's an assistant professor in the Department of East Asian Studies and Japan Studies at the University of Vienna. He received his PhD from the University of Duisburg and held a position as senior research fellow at the German Institute for Japanese Studies in Tokyo. And just as an aside. Uh, There are a lot of really good scholars who have gone through that institute at at various times. It's a really impressive place. Um, His research interests include central local political relations, the political economy of rural revitalization in Japan, the Japanese welfare state, and the role of informal institutions and processes of institutional change in advanced political economies. So as I was thinking about how to get started with our our interview, um, it occurred to me that, you know, many of our listeners may not really have much of a sense of what the patterns of agricultural life in Japan are like. It's very different from uh, certainly people in the United States. You know, you don't have these kind of massive farms like we have in the U.S., and I'm sure it's different from Austria and Germany. Um, And also there's a great deal of change going on that you discuss in the book. So I'd, I'd like to begin um, with some description of your field site. Could you talk about um, what it, what's agricultural life like in, in the place where you did your research and maybe a little bit more general, what is life like um, and how are things changing?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. It's, um, it's actually pretty hard to say what agricultural life is like, like in general. Um, I think that the book has like a strong focus on local agency and also um, I'm kind of keen on um, pointing out local differences. And usually like when you think about agriculture in Japan, it's a lot about rice and, and rice cultivation. And actually, that is still the most prominent widespread form of land use in Japan. That's true. But actually, there are differences even between different rice growing areas. And um, there's a striking variety in other local traditions and agricultural histories and production structures. So one of my main field sites was actually not a rice growing place at all. It's the Kofu Basin in Yamanashi Prefecture. And that's a place where there's virtually no paddy field cultivation. It's all fruit farming. It's all peaches and grapes. And that makes a big difference in lifestyle and work cycles and the socioeconomic situation of the farmers. So um, if you just take a walk through um, the Kofu Basin, the agriculturally active uh, center of the Kofu Basin, you will just meet an, an elderly couple typically working um, on their fields, like every other meter, every few meters. Uh, it's all around, year-round manual labor. There's always something to do. There's almost no mechanization or very little mechanization um, in food farming going on. Um, and rice farming areas feel totally different. Rice farming areas are um, uh, more widespread. They're typically also in, in plain and flat areas, at least if there's commercial rice farming. Um, and there's a different work life. There's, uh, rice farming is far less labor intensive. Uh, it's almost fully mechanized um, and has been fully mechanized for decades now in Japan. There's almost no manual labor um, and it's a totally different work cycle. So there are peak labor phases um, in planting and harvesting, um, maintaining fields where you know everybody's out and working. But outside these uh, phases, you might actually walk through one of these areas and don't actually meet anybody um, actually working on the field. Um, and it's also socioeconomically it's a bit different because rice still and i'm going to talk about the changes a bit later but still it's to a large extent a part-time or even a weekend occupation so most rice farmers um have other um uh, urban jobs um or are retirees you know are, are already um retired um and um it's usually like a, a, yeah a part-time um sort of business and horticulture or the fruit farming in the kofa basin is a bit different it's all small scale it's also very yeah family household based but it's far more commercialized because even tiny farms that have like far less than a hectare um, of land under cultivation tend to be commercial farms and there's a lot of buzzing commercial activity you can see direct sales places to quite and um, um, there's people shipping to the cooperative for people having direct relations to customers, um, and a lot of more, yeah, um, actual individual commercial activity happening than in rice farming. Uh, in terms of change, I think um, it's not so different because there's this one factor that is really dominating change uh, in Japanese farming and that is aging. Um, it's the fact that so, so, so many producers are no older than 65, actually older than 70. Um, and with aging comes land loss and abandonment and that's like the most visible sign of agricultural decline in rural japan it's wherever you go actually once you start noticing abandoned fields um you can see them everywhere and even in the kofu basin which is like really agricultural active um abandoned fields like overgrown plots are popping up
1: Yeah. yeah this is a shocking aspect i think of rural japan in general and the lifestyles there that when you go there um I actually remember years ago, a couple of years ago, three or four, maybe something. But um, my daughter and I were driving somewhere and, you know, she was maybe 12 at the time. And and she says, Dad, all these buildings look empty. And I'm like, yeah, they are. (laughs) And she said, wow. And, And I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you, you know, count over the next, you know, kilometer or so how many that look empty to you? And she counted, I don't know, 15 or 20 buildings that looked abandoned and this is i think something that people outside of japan don't realize that's going on with the with the shift in population there that there are just empty houses you know empty farmhouses empty storefronts everywhere you go in rural japan and i think what is it the government estimates that there are something like 8 million empty abodes um, you know it it's just an astounding number and that's only going to get more intense
2: yeah. And and agriculture is just one of these aspects, empty stores, empty houses. That's another visible sign of decline, right? But in agriculture, I mean it's it's the empty land where you can actually see that was under cultivation until recently, and now you can see that it's overgrowing. Japan overgrows quickly. I mean the summers are hot yes. and humid, and, and once you stop tending to the field, it just overgrows really quickly. And it's really hard to recover. So it's a big, big problem. Um and it's underlying also- this yeah.
1: I was just going to say, it's also um, causing, um, as John Knight has talked about, it's causing wildlife to move back into populated areas. Like I know um, my my wife grew up on a dairy farm and um, their the neighbors grow corn and they have a big problem with bears now. Um, you know, they just come right down into the farmland and start eating the, the produce. And of course, not only is it bad that they're eating the produce, but they're scary. Um, and I see animals I didn't used to see. I see fox pretty regularly now when I'm there. Um, we see tanuki sometimes. Actually, I think they're becoming more of a of a kind of pest like problem. Um, it's just really interesting to see all these animals moving back into populated areas.
2: Yeah, it's uh, for rice farming. It's uh, it's wild boar in Osashi That's a big problem because they yeah. they tend to just push down um, the rice plants. And in, uh, in the fruit farming basin, in the Kofu Basin, once you move up the slopes, there's more abandoned land because it's less populated and it's harder to cultivate. And then for the farmers who remain there, there's deer uh, and monkeys, um, yeah. which come down the mountains and, and, and actually have, create a lot of trouble. So that's really a big problem. Um, yeah, John Knight writes about it. Uh, we actually shared a panel on that. It's a, uh, he, he, he's yeah, talking yeah. about I mean, monkeys.
1: He's, he's, yeah, he's done some really, really great work on that. Um. So, well, you you raised a theme a couple times, and what you were just saying that I mean is really important important, and this runs throughout the book. Uh, you talk about this very close connection between aging and farming in Japan, and as you know, most of the uh, farmers, most of the rice farmers, but but you know, you you commented fruit farmers as well are over the age of sixty. Uh, I, I see this in the area where I do my research in northern Japan. Um, it's actually rather striking to go through farming areas, and the farmers you meet almost always look like they are sixty or above um, and you know as as you say with 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 rice farming, it's not that labor intensive, but with fruit farming like where I work, it's apples, but apples are very labor intensive and so there's there's a lot of work involved um, but it's largely an occupation of older people and so Um, Early in the book, you you have an interesting point that you make that giving up farmland represents not only giving up a lifestyle, but also a potential source of income in old age. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on this and also if you could talk a bit about, you know, why is it that farming is typically done by older people in Japan?
2: Yeah, Um, there's a shift and a change, right? There's this aging and underlying this abandoned farming and aging and decline. There's the ongoing uh, the ongoing uh, structural change is just the fact that um uh, farmers give up and there is a trend that larger farms more professional farms absorb some of their land so that is that is happening and that is also it's not happening by coincidence but it's actually the result of uh, an ongoing reform process um, that has been going on since the mid-1990s that is really um pushing for changing the agricultural production structure and trying to make it more um More productive, more efficient. Um, but why are there so many uh, old farms in the first place? It's, it's more like um, a, a historical or a historical institutionalist argument in my book. And you could start this argument way back, but I only jump in the post war um, land reform. Right? This land reform has redistributed um, all the farmland in Japan more or less evenly um, to private farm households, about one hectare per farm household. And then in the decades to come, the LDP government um, was really eager to support and protect these households massively. And that is especially a rice farming story because especially rice farming was supported, protected massively. And it turned into a really highly subsidized part-time occupation um, for many farm households. And they would you know, probably have their main sources of income elsewhere, but have rice farming sort of as a kicker um, um, in rural areas. And that led to many, many things, but among many other things, what it led to is that rice farming households had strong incentives to hold on to their land. Um, In more urban areas, they might wait for an opportunity to sell it profitably to urban development, which led to massive fragmentation of rural areas, right? Like a patchwork pattern of a combini here, a street here, a house here, abandoned apartment block here, and then remaining plots of land all in between, which is by itself a massive problem. Or um, to keep farming part-time, right? And there were very little incentives to actually hand over the land to industrializing more professional farms because there were simply very few of them and it would just not make so much sense to do that. And over time, younger generations would move away to study and to work in, in urban areas. And the remaining people tending to this land would grow older and older. And because... Um, The government does not support even rice farms as um, massively as it used to since the mid-1990s, 2000s. Um, And because the land is so fragmented and tiny, um, there's really nobody who wants to take it. So the remaining people in these rural areas still farming tend to be very old, and it only grows worse um, um, over time. So that's one of the problems that these reforms are dealing with is how can we actually redistribute the land um, from these remaining and aging and aging farms to other producers who want to take it, who can take it, um, yeah, and who can um, um, yeah, farm efficiently in the government language.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Um, I'd like to turn now to the main theme of the book, the role of institutional structures in Japanese agriculture and their relationship to political structures. Um, I think anyone who's done research in rural Japan has encountered JA, which is referred to in Japanese at times somewhat ominously as the Nokyo. Um, It's a system of agricultural cooperatives that kind of loom over virtually every aspect of agricultural life in Japan. So could you
2: talk about
1: um, these institutional structures and their relations to local and
2: national politics? Yeah. Uh, So due to these structural reforms and aging um, for for many of these older um, farm households, especially rice farming households, the choice is just between giving up agriculture um, and getting rid of the land. Um, and maybe not even having somebody who will take the land, which is just leave it um, um, to fall idle Um, or to do something, right? To do something to uh, expand a business or become a more professional farm household or or agricultural entity. And of course, for many of these very old farms, that's not an option. That is not something um, that many retirees who have been part-time farmers for several decades want to do and can do. So, um, really limited options but there are some loopholes and in these loopholes you can see um, what is possible maybe or what people can do and one of the loopholes i talk about in the book is uh, the so-called hamlet based collective farms which are um, a form of agricultural production where several households can pool their land and the machinery and their labor and also their risks um, and then form one collective farm that the government in probably or in, under some conditions counts as a professional farm that is still worthy of state support and i talked to many of the members of these collective farms and what you hear then is that people say well you know that was our chance to actually keep on going because otherwise you know uh, you you can't be a farm household anymore you have to um, give up your land um your tochi uh, moti noti moti hinoka a non-farming household that still holds land. And that is the chance to actually um, yeah, do something about it and pool land. And if you look at it statistically or just talk to people, uh, you realize quickly that many members of these Hamlet-based collective farms are actually retirees, former part-time rice farming households. And it's very subsidy productive. So there's this motive. But then also, it's a chance to actually keep on doing what people have been doing and share risks. Because, for example, if you know, both people in a farm household who still farm, grandma and grandpa, are in their 70s, for example, and then just before harvesting season, somebody falls sick, breaks a leg, whatever, the whole year is gone. The money that you have invested is already not really profitable. Um, um, and people rely on the rice that they um, grow for self-consumption as well, right? And to sort of control for these risks, Hamlet-based collective farming is one of the ways um, that farm households react. And when you talk to them, you can see that you know, if there's an opportunity. Um, that arises, and people can form this consensus and agree to uh, form such a farm that many people actually like to carry on, uh, and, and yeah, I take this opportunity. I think. Yeah, usually. Yeah, it's um, also if you join this farm and uh, you get a um, certification as a ninte Nogisha as a certified um, farmer, um, uh, these farms can also buy new and bigger equipment for zero interest loans. So it's highly subsidized
1: it's a very it's a very complicated situation you know and i think this there's a one of the things your book does a really wonderful job of is bringing together a variety of factors that are involved related to you know things like population change but but also this intertwining of of different types of institutions local and larger institutions and situating it all in in this broader context of of you know the the politics of of japan and its in and also the, the sort of the culture of the the small family centered farm. And um, I'm curious. I, I usually ask this question at the beginning of interviews, but I, I thought it would be you know better in this case to get some general background on on rural Japanese life. So I'm I'm curious. What brought you to this topic? How did you become interested in in studying? Agricultural practices in Japan.
2: Yeah, um, there's like, like sort of a personal answer uh, and an academic answer. The personal answer is that the personal experience, actually, because I did um, uh, something that's called woof in 2010. That's called willing workers on organic farms, and that was my ticket to Japan as a as a as an MA student. So I did half a year of woofing, uh, and I started out in the Kofu basin, and I got hooked in the Kofu basin to this day. Um actually, and, and many of the peoples I worked with in the Kofu Basin, are not many, but the key persons were people I met back in 2010 already. Um but then I moved around, right? I harvested sugarcane on Tokunoshima and I helped aging farmers weed black bean fields uh in Hyogo, and I rarely met any professional farmers along the way. Um, but I always encountered JA somewhere. And I was a student of uh, of politics of East Asia at that time. So um I did an MA in politics of East Asia. So I, I really got interested in, um, in these structures, right? What is this organization? Why, why it se- does it seem to be everywhere? At the same time, it's not really liked. So usually when I ask people for what JA is, I got a really annoyed answer. I say, oh, yeah, it's them, you know. As, as you know, probably from your own field site, it's not a very liked <laughs> organization. It's powerful, it's ubiquitous, but it's not really popular. Um, I, I came back to Germany I really wanted to know what I can know about this so so I, I sat down and, and, and started reading and the role of Nokia quickly found all the literature about Nokia what I mentioned before like being the obstacle to change and to reform the rural power base of the LDP and then quickly found out that all these things have been changing they had been changing for a while when I started doing research and they have changed ever since right and I realized that there is change happening Politically, in rural practices, and production structure, etc. Um, you know, one of the farmers I worked with back then, and I still work with later, is one of these entrepreneurs I write about in my book, um, in the KOfu Basin, in the food farming KOfu Basin. It's one of these entrepreneurs who actually started this business, particularly to do something else than everybody around. That's the first farmer I actually got to know personally was somebody who wanted to start a wine and grape business, a diversified business. Um, And he managed to do that by now. Um, And he had a plan and it sets him apart from most other local farmers. And he has very strong opinions about JA. He's one of these um, entrepreneurs uh, who JA should be afraid of because they have their own plans and they don't actually want to confirm uh, um, or reproduce any of these cooperative structures anymore. They have no interest in that, right? So I knew that was possible, right? Um, and there's things changing. So what I was not finding in the literature was a, a theoretical concept of institutional change, like a theoretically founded concept of institutional change. Only the narrative that, yes, some things have changed, but others have just remained in place. So there's change, but then there's stability. And that narrative like sort of struck a chord because that, brought me to a theoretical problem in neo-institutionalism in general, right? It's a theory um, that I was interested in before um, that is really good at explaining stability, but really bad at explaining change. Um, uh, And so I thought, well, actually, I'm looking at a case here that is seemingly changing, but at the same time seemingly not changing. So why not take this as a case for understanding or better understanding gradual institutional change and not just institutional stability? Uh, and that was like my starting point. Uh, I, I wanted to turn it into a case um, to understand gradual endogenous agency-driven institutional change. And then I went from there. And um, Yeah, uh, I have been working on that for... No, I stopped, actually. <laughs> now I try to find ways out of this topic, but um have been working on that for eight years or so.
1: Well, I think, you know, what we get out of your work is that, you know, harvesting state support is just... And, exceptionally detailed. And and as an anthropologist, I would describe it as an ethnographically rich study of the political economy of Japanese agricultural regions. It's a, I think it's a really important book. And, you know, we've really only touched on the surface of both the description that's there and as well as your analysis. And I'm wondering, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to raise for our listeners?
2: Yeah, um, well, at, at some point um, you were wondering like, what is the role of local informal institutions, right? What what can local informal institutions um, do? And typically, you know, what, are, are they not simply being overrun by stronger um, informal institutions? And I think in this, there, there hides one of the major theoretical um, points that I want to raise about informal institutions. So if, so if I may, I would like to talk about this a little bit because, um, yeah, I think that's quite an interesting point um, about this, is that I'm not exactly countering the idea that local informal institutions um, um, are weaker, right? I don't say that local informal institutions can overrun or will overrun um, formal rules, uh, policy changes um, in any place. But what my argument wants to do is raise attention to the aspect of agency um, and wants to raise attention to the fact that I think what I found in my research is that informal institutions, or I call them village institutions, um, to summarize, you know, a number of different norms and practices, what they do is also a matter of how local actors are instrumentalizing them, what they do with them, how they are reinventing and adjusting them. Because usually when we talk about rural informal institutions, right, what we, what we typically get is, is a narrative of decline. Um, right, that is... Um, all these traditional norms and practices, communal labor, and all that—that that has been declining in Japan, and not only in Japan, but also in Austria, in Germany, in the US, etc. Um, and and then others say, well, you know, that might be, but the glass is not half empty; the glass is half full, right? If we look at Japan, despite all these socio-economic change, we can still see that some rural practices. Um, um, and norms uh, and social structure are remarkably stable, right? And, and we would look at, for example, how a Hamlet or a neighborhood association is organized and see, well, obviously uh, something is left, so the glass is not half empty, the glass is half full. And I wouldn't argue with any of these statements. I think they're all right. I think that's, that's all correct. But analytically, they're quite frustrating, right? Analytically, mm-hmm. um, what do we do with that? Is, are they important? Are they not important? And so I don't dispute um, the fact that, you know, these rural institutions change. and also don't dispute that they have been declining over time. But what I want to do is add a qualifier and say what they are and what they do is what local actors make of them and how they recombine mm-hmm. these practices with changing uh, formal rules. Now, after, Like for one example, I, I talked about Hamlet-based collective farms earlier, right? Um, mm-hmm. These were farms combine their land and their labor in, into a collective farm. And first of all, I would say very few hamlets in Japan actually still rely on communal labor in the way they used to 50 or 60 years ago, right? That's a story I heard in the field, and I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would agree, and, and I would say most people working in rural Japan would agree. That is not the case anymore, Yeah. And why would they? Because they have no reason. They're, most people work in other industries. There are less farmers left on, in, in, in the Hamlet. Rice farming is mechanized. So there's really no need for that. But I think that in Hamlet-based farms, right, under certain circumstances, these Hamlets, which still exist as a social unit, right, they can rediscover and adapt communal norms and practices as the foundation to do something else. For example, to create a Hamlet-based collective farms. And that might not be the same exactly, like they don't go back in time and then start doing, you know, traditional communal labor again. But the very idea is very similar, right? They still work together or pool resources at the Hamlet level, be it to extract the associated subsidies or to reinstall mutual communal support in an aging Hamlet because, you know, they can't go on um, on the individual household level. And I think that's really important because there's something sort of in the tool set um, of these Hamlets that they can come back to um, when they see an opportunity to do so, when they have a reason to do so. And if you think about that, that way, right, um, about informal institutions, then they seem much more flexible um, than uh, they appear from the macro level. From the macro level, we only see gradual decline over time. But at the local level, we see actors actually reinventing something that has not been used for quite some time or, yeah, recombining um, uh, the idea of a Hamlet as a communal labor organization with a certain subsidy uh, so that it suddenly, um, yeah, it's meaningful again and, and um, yeah, is being reinvented. Again. Yeah, I think that's...
1: Um... Yeah. I actually think that's one of the wonderful things about this book. It it, it captures something that, um, well, I, um, Bill Kelly at, at Yale and I have talked about this in relation to the the way rural Japan gets right written about, and it's so often so often written about in terms of decline. Hmm. But in fact, what's happening is a reinvention. The words you used, and and there's an enormous amount of creativity involved in the way local individuals, local groups, institutions are sort of accessing the larger institutions and the political schemes. And as you know, agency is, is definitely the word that that they're using these things to reinvent the world that they live in. And I think your book does really a wonderful job of, of kind of situating that and, and also helping us to see how it's related to larger flows of, of political and economic things, but that this local level, at the Hamlet level, there's a, an awful lot of creativity going on.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a story about contingency also. It's, that, yes. it's really, really hard to say that, you know, these what I call village institutions, right, it's, it's a deliberately vague term and it takes different shapes in different areas, um, not least because of the agency element. And it's very hard to say, you know, from a bird's eye, from a macro perspective, that these village institutions do one thing and not another. I don't think right. that's possible. Right. It's, it's about contingency and agency. It's about contingent local processes. And in Shikawa, for example, I know that's not the regular case, right? That's not how agriculture is organized all over Japan. But there are some cases that are similar to Shikawa. And what we see here is a contingent process of local actors that have, over time, built an organized local regime by really integrating village institutions as resources, right? Integrating them into, for example, local farmland governance. And the fact that this can happen at some place but doesn't happen at another place doesn't really, you know, it it doesn't translate in generalizable arguments that village institutions can only do one thing, like can only be used to, I don't know, uh, block reforms or block change, right? They can be used for several things, and it really depends on what, you know, what local actors do with that. Within a certain range, right, you can't, like... um, stop aging at the local level you can't right, really right. Uh, um, uh, turn around demographic trends at the local level but at least there's some sort of adaption and i think this adaption is important to understand the pace and the direction uh, of this process of institutional change so what's up next could you talk about uh, your current research and what your your plans for writing in the future what's the next book
1: that we're going to get
2: uh, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good question. It comes in handy because I actually, uh, I've just published, uh, an edited volume together with, uh, Sonia Ganseford from the DHA. Um, and that's called Rethinking Locality in Japan. Um, and it's actually, it is actually, it's published with rubble. It's actually inspired to some extent by, by harvesting state support in the sense that I began thinking about, you know, what are local boundaries, um, why is it important that municipal boundaries and cooperative boundaries are not in sync anymore? And these sort of questions. And Sonya is, is a human geographer, and we sort of um, got together over these questions and then thought, you know, let's write an edited volume about it. Um, and so it's a book that brings together multiple perspectives on what we might mean when we say local in Japan. Um, and as analyzes like various issues like aging, like urban rural migration. Um, through the lens of, you know, locality, what locality means. I uh, has a number of great colleagues in, um, Bill Kelly is there, Susanna Kleen is, is in there, Ken Higino, um, and many, many others. Uh, so I, I can't remember them all now. But um, yeah, that is just out last week with Rob Lynch, So um, Well, that sounds great. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And, then, and well, what are the, you what are you working on from here? Um yeah, Corona is really complicated um, for, for yes. those of us who, who actually, yeah. And yeah. um, what I do is I work on a series of papers that um, on a new form of local governance in rural Japan, that's mm-hmm. so-called regional management organizations, Chiki onisoshiki in Japanese. And the focus is not on agriculture this time, it's on the changing relationship between the state and civil society in rural Japan. Uh, it's against the background of decentralization, municipal mergers, and, and the decline of public service provision, and really about um, how, um, yeah, uh, civic self governance organizations um, are being sort of responsabilized to step into, um, step in, and, and and sort of supplement uh, the local state in self governing uh, rural Japan. And that mm-hmm. is something that I've write about um, currently, and hopefully, um, well, uh, submit a manuscript soon but actually um there's so much more research to be done uh, on this topic like case studies and on the ground research and and i haven't been to japan now for uh, one and a half years yeah yeah
1: yeah Yeah, same here i don't think i've been there for two years and and uh i have been able to do a little bit of work uh over zoom which has been interesting um Mm. but it it's very difficult if you can't go there to do the kind of research that both you and I do. And that's, uh, you know, really uh, meant kind of a slowing of, of work that, that has an ethnographic component to it.
2: Yeah. yeah, when I was still at the DIJ, I, I did some pilot research into this topic uh, in a place called Ida City in Nagano. And uh, that's actually a lot already that, that I have sort of gathered, but I wasn't really sure how to frame it. Um, and now, since um, I, I frame it in this uh, um, civil society, um, local state relationship, obviously there are new questions arising um, and, and yeah, other topics I would like to talk about. And yeah, there's a gap. And, and I think the gap is growing. And so far, um, how I try to fill it um, is uh, there's lots of documents available, um, policy documents, uh, Shingikai documents, in which these topics are being discussed um, from a more, you know, ideotypical policymaking sort of perspective. And and I'm working with these documents for the time being, um, before I have a chance to go back.
1: Well, it sounds like a lot of really interesting uh, work is going to continue to flow from uh, your research. And um, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join me on the New Books Network. Um, Anyone interested in either political economy and agriculture in Japan uh, will find this Um, an insightful and intellectually provocative read. It is a very important book, and and I encourage people to take a look at it. Um, More generally, I think it's an important book for anyone interested in the intersection of local and larger institutional structures as they relate to changing agricultural practices. Um, This book really does uh, dive deeply into the study in Japan, and uh, I think it's, again, a very important contribution. So it's been a pleasure talking with you about this fascinating and important book, and um, I look forward to seeing what comes next.
2: Thank you very much. I, I have to just give this back uh, right back at you because it has been a pleasure to talk to you as well, and that was a great opportunity. As uh, I've never done a podcast before, uh, and I really <laughs> enjoyed, uh, you know, having the time to talk about this book in, um, um, yeah, not just well, conference format. Right, it's really fun to do that.
1: Yeah, it's really fun to be able to do these. And um, I I hope we can uh, work on on this next edited volume. Maybe we can do another podcast on that pretty soon. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much.
2: Thank you.